Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barblay, and for people listening to Biota for the first time, this is a continuation of the Biota podcasts, which you can find at biota, B-I-O-T-A dot org slash podcast. And for people who are listening to this as part of the podcast, at 8 p.m. every Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, that is, we hold a live podcast or a live internet radio program with regards to artificial life and talking about the history of artificial life, what's going on currently with artificial life, and the future of artificial life. And this has been the history of the Biota podcast to date. I believe we have a, a, an early caller calling in from the UK, and we'll also have Bruce Damer coming on. So I'll answer the UK caller first. Hello? Hello. Oh, this is just hey, mine. Yes, it is. Sorry. I didn't realize. Hi. I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for calling in. You are the first caller on Biota Live, and I had anticipated your call somewhat and went and had a look at your blog and your uh, company. And we're really doing an introduction um, this evening with regards to artificial life and the, the history of artificial life and what this thing is for new listeners. But in terms of your own personal interest in artificial life, can you give some discussion to that? Certainly. Um, I guess about oh, almost two years ago, I started exploring the concepts of evolutionary computation and artificial life and heard about uh, an organization called the Graytham through a posting on the Fryum, uh, Friday morning, the group that meets every Friday morning in Santa Fe. And I decided I ended up flying from the UK one time to go visit one of the, the sessions and participated in you know, reading the blog and just find it really quite interesting. I think it is a, a real way of revolutionizing the use of many core systems, grid computing and high-performance computing environments, effectively allowing us to grow software as opposed to design it. Certainly, certainly. No, I mean, hearing about Graysum through John Klein, and then also I encourage people who are uh, listening to this either live or through the podcast to just put the words Graysum into, I think, Google Video or just visit graysum.org. This is a grassroots movement coming out in Boston. Um, I guess it was, what, three to five friends that got together initially and then made it into uh, a kind of collective of existing artificial life developers, uh, biologists, computer scientists, various intellectuals, apparently even lawyers attend. Have you been to, have you been to a Graysum meeting? Yeah, I flew from the UK actually to attend one. Um, I, I was able to, you know, do multiple things in Boston at the time. They're fascinating. It's just people getting together, drinking beer, and doing kind of an informal uh, discussion with hobbyists, hackers, uh, programmers, and, you know, lawyers go, and, and all sorts of different people go. I met uh, Brian uh, Peltonen, who does some stuff with um, uh, agent-based modeling with ants. Certainly. Some of the other bloggers over there, you probably know them. I know that you're now that you're blogging on the site also. Yes, no, I've I've had the privilege to be able to contribute to the Graysum blog for I think about two months now, and certainly the hope is to have. I mean, John Klein has been on the po the podcast twice previously, and my hope is to have a wide variety of the folk at Graysum actually come on by to live and have a chat as you're uh, having currently. In terms of, um, I know your uh, company, and I'm not sure whether you want to talk too much about your company specifically, but the idea of simulation as being something that is really a superset to contemporary artificial life, can you talk a little bit about simulation uh, as a 
almost an abstract philosophical science in itself, because that's certainly what I got from your blog and your company's website. Well, yeah, I guess in 1999 or 2000, I had read a book uh, called The Fifth Discipline and ended up enrolling in MIT to study system dynamics. And then over the past five years or seven years, I guess now, what I realized is that there was a convergence of different mathematical techniques for representing the physics of reality. These would be things like agent-based modeling, system dynamics, you know, discrete event simulations, etc., effectively allowing us to map out continuous and discrete. When I saw them coming together, I just realized it was a kind of a groundbreaking new way of solving some of the more difficult problems that global enterprises were facing. Most definitely. What fascinates me about these concepts is, and this is really why we're doing a, a live internet radio show now, is bringing this to more to a general audience. And what fascinates me about um, the stuff that you're describing with simulation is it's actually applicable to a, a wide variety of fields that people are familiar with. Now, I've got to give a shout-out to Dave Van Eyes, Dr. Dave. I appeared on his Shrink Wrap Radio Live version, um, which is similar to Biota Live and really the inspiration for Biota Live in some regard. And he touched on a wide variety of areas, some of which you've described, uh, but certainly ideas in grid computing, ideas in artificial intelligence, artificial life, um, early uh, biology and simulating early biology, which is fundamentally also linking with artificial life. But he also mentioned the singularity movement and these kind of things. And I think there are a number of topics that we're going to be talking about um, on, on Bios Alive into the future. And one point that I should probably make as well for folks in the UK and Europe, we're going to do a Saturday morning my time, which will probably be 10 a.m. Pacific on a Saturday, the first Saturday of the month, in order to bring in folks that are listening in Europe as well. Now, Justin, I want to bring Bruce Damer on as well. He's been on hold for a minute Bruce, we have Justin Lyon from the, calling in from the UK and talking about Graytham currently. Welcome to the pod, uh, welcome to the radio show, I should say, Bruce. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Justin. So, in, term, in terms of must-read books, this was something I was thinking about in terms of introducing artificial life to a general audience. Justin, as you called in first, what would you say would be your top five artificial life? or simulation dynamics, maybe um, abstract or theoretical biology, the kind of books that you would recommend someone who is just starting out reading? I think... Uh, uh, go ahead, Bruce. I, I like Darwin Among the Machines a lot because it, it gives you so much history uh, and it takes a totally different slant on things. And I like Levy's Artificial Life as well because it talks about the people and the projects. It gives you, puts you in, kind of in, the, in the, the times of the 80s to early 90s when a lot of this was, was coming to fruition. Certainly. I mean, historically, Bruce, I was thinking about this in a kind of comparative discussion between you and me because we both came to artificial life from almost completely different ends. I came to it from uh, isolation, from growing up in Australia and reading a lot of early books, including Levy's, which would certainly be on my top five list as well. And you, however, actually met with people like Chris Langton early on. So I, what fascinates me is our different perspectives from the start, but we've kind of met in the middle with regards to biota. But Justin, getting back to you, what, what would you recommend your, your top five books for people starting out with an interest in artificial life? With respect to artificial life, I think 
your best resources are honestly going to be either on the web, um, you know, to just stay up to date. I mean, even the Noble Eight project, the things that you've done, there's lots of great resources. That's where I would personally start. And then in terms of getting ideas, perhaps some of the science fiction novels might be quite interesting. Like uh, there's one great short story called Microcosmic God that was written, oh, I guess in the 40s or 50s that is uh, about a, uh, an artificial life being developed by a, a kind of a brilliant uh, inventor called Neoterix. Uh, if you don't have it, I can email it to you. So it's the most incredible short story I've ever read about artificial life. It was sent to me by one of the bloggers uh, that, I, that I met online. Yeah, I think one of the points of inspiration for me as well was reading a lot of science fiction in my um, early teens. And I think science fiction shows a great degree of potential. I appeared on the sci-fi show towards the end of last year primarily to kind of reach out to science fiction authors and science fiction readers saying, you know, come to, uh, you know, communicate with actual artificial life developers, people that have created simulations, perhaps people, scientists currently developing wet artificial life, people that have made, uh, you know, many different little robots, kind of hard artificial life, communicate with people doing these kind of primary, um, you know, hands-on projects as inspiration for your future writing. Because I think if you look at uh, from early artificial life up until contemporary artificial life, science fiction has played a major role as an inspiration, but also, as you say, a kind of primary catalyst uh, in terms of a lot of development. What, what are your thoughts on that, Bruce? I think so. I think that, you know, whether it be from watching Star Trek or, or movie, TV science fiction, or some of the most wonderful uh, sort of scientist-written science fiction. Um, I mean, it's, it's where the, humagi- the human imagination goes is where technology will follow. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's a really good suggestion. And, you know, in the recent, in, since for about the last 25 years, the genre of cyberpunk science fiction has sort of di- diverted from spaceships, battles, and planets, you know, the, the hardcore science fiction from the 1930s to 50s, uh, and that's a new genre, and it's all about cyberspace, but it's uh, one of the, the, the best the best books I've read this year is Werner Vinge's uh, Rainbow's End, uh, which came out in 2007. It's a Hugo uh, winner for 2007, and it's about an amazing augmented reality future in 25 years. I mean, certainly reading the early cyberpunk, particularly in the contemporary context, you see how so much of that inspired contemporary technology in some regard. That's not some of the darker elements. In fact, perhaps even some of the darker elements. But I think this kind of relationship between science fiction and uh, broader technological development uh, is, is particularly pertinent with regards to artificial life. Now, in terms of people who are new to artificial life who may be listening to this live or listening to the podcast for the first time. Bruce, I mean, you've, you've had primary contact with a number of the historical names associated with artificial life, but also you're very up to speed with regards to contemporary artificial life. If you were to take kind of five-year steps over the past 20 years, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you kind of describe the movements and what artificial life, because... Ultimately, if you look at a definition of artificial life, it changes over time. And what fascinated me coming to this podcast was that you can cover both the history and what artificial life is by looking at the history in these kind of increments. 
So for people completely unfamiliar with artificial life, Bruce, can you give a kind of 20 years within five-year increments history? I think so. Um, from 1980, say from the beginning of digital computing in the late 1940s until 1980 or so, or even the mid-80s, uh, I think what could have been called artificial life was sort of numerical virtual organism simulations or certainly the, the cellular automata movement and the Conway's Game of Life, which I think was published in 1966 or 7. And that was a game where blocks would, all graphically on the screen or on a printer sometimes, would, would reproduce into adjacent squares if they could, and you get all these patterns emerging. And then I think from about 1985 to 1990, that's when I was doing cellular automata programming in graduate school, and the Santa Fe Institute was formed in that period, or the rather the um, Santa Fe Artificial Life Conferences happened, and it moved beyond uh, just the pure cellular automata uh, ideas into much more diversity, and you had the fractal work of Mandelbrot coming out in that period. And then I think from about 1990 to 95, there was this period of real media attention um, and kind of, uh, you know, the Stephen Levy's book came out and Chris Langton and SFI was was formed and moved into its, its current location. And there was a media attention and there was uh, the idea of complexity theory. There were invest, investment dollars flowing into it and a lot of hype uh, that took it up and then took it back down. And then I think between 1995 and 2000, there, that's when we held the uh, the Biota Conference series uh, largely. And the AVA Artificial Life Conference series, which had started, had kind of devolved into a kind of, I would call it a physics wannabe. Uh, there wasn't much visionary component. There were a lot of papers, very statistical. Um, and it, it, it had lost the visionary founders in that period. Can you describe the early biota conferences for people not familiar with them? The, the early, the first biota conference we did in the summer of 1997, and I, I formed the biota conference series exactly because I thought that the visionary and multi, multidisciplinary aspect of artificial life was being drummed out of it. And so I got in touch with all the original people, including uh, Richard Dawkins, who'd done work in the 80s on his biomorphs, and Chris, Chris Langton, and said, would you like to come to a conference that not only mixes uh, the visionary elements in, but it will allow you to interact with paleontologists? Now, the late Stephen Jay Gould also played some role. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, he encouraged us to, the first conference we held was literally going to be at the Burgess Shale in the Canadian Rockies, where we would climb up to the fossil deposit that he described in a book in the early 90s called Wonderful Life, which was about the weird creatures of the so-called Cambrian explosion um, that were found in the shale, all sandwiched in there, all these odd creatures. And I went to see him at Harvard, and he was extremely encouraging. I said, I'm going to take all this diverse group of people up to the Burgess Shale, and I'm going to start a movement called Biota, uh, which will be multidisciplinary, it'll be a community, and that will hopefully inspire a lot of, of things. And he couldn't come because he had been 
his cancer had returned. Uh, but we invited quite a group of people that showed up and made the hike, and then we talked for two days at the BAMF Center. And then there were uh, four, uh, three subsequent events, um, one in Cambridge, UK, and that our hosts were Douglas Adams and uh, Richard Dawkins. And then the Steve third... Grand, too, I believe. Sorry? Steve Grand as well. Grand, yeah, they were the sponsors, actually, of that entire event, so the Creatures Company. Uh, and uh, thanks for the correction. And then the third event was held at San Jose State, uh, and the, the hosts were uh, Rudy Rucker and Bruce Sterling, or the keynotes. And that was a different conference again. I have, I've had the privilege of seeing sections of video from that conference, and that had kind of breakout groups, and there was a lot of discussion, and really very vibrant stuff, which unfortunately doesn't translate very well to podcasts, because there are you know, five or six people having a heated debate and then another person will come in and in an audio podcast alone, unfortunately, that doesn't translate too well. But anyway, continue, Bruce. I'm sorry. Yes, and in fact, the, the focus of that conference was to bring the game developer community in, into it. And uh, because we realized by, by the late 90s, and this was held in 99, we realized that the energies of people building rich environments uh, not only avatar worlds on the internet, but multi ma increasingly massively multiplayer games, that those would potentially be not only good ecosystems to do artificial life experiments with human users involved, but also there was a huge amount of brain power and technology going into those uh, 3D, mostly 3D environments. And uh, interestingly enough, a, a game company got involved with Tom Ray, who was another early A-Life pioneer to build, uh, using a physics engine to build a swimming creatures simulation in real time of Carl Sims' early work. And that came out of, it was called Virtual Life, and that came out of the uh, of Biota 3. And Biota 4 was held in 2001, and it was a part of the North American Paleontological Convention in, at UC Berkeley. And that was where Roy Plotnick was attempting to bring his field and all his Paleo, paleontological friends and colleagues to see how you could use the tools of simulation and real-time modeling and 3D to help the field of paleobiology. And then the uh, dot-com crash was uh, in happening, and we uh, realized we couldn't pull off another conference for several years. If, if I can pick up the story here, Bruce, because I think this is probably the start of when I started getting involved with Biota. Um, historically, I think there were a number of people, and this goes back to the founders of Graysum as well, who were relatively young but also relatively excited by, as we've said, reading science fiction, but also the early 90s. It's really hard to describe to someone like Justin, for example, what the early 90s was like in terms of the quality and the breadth and the diversity, um, when I say diversity, they weren't specifically on artificial life in some regard, but they certainly inspired artificial life development. There were a lot of books that were available. Um, and in thinking of a list of five books, personally, 
obviously Levy came to mind, a couple of Dawkins, you know, but there were also uh, collaborative efforts. Uh, Margaret A. Bowden, who I think was at Biota 2, did The Philosophy of Artificial Life, I think, in 93. And there were all these kind of books. The Great Ape Project inspired me personally, obviously, with Noble Ape. Um, but there were just so many books out there. And in the contemporary setting, unfortunately, as Justin has said, there aren't really a lot of books anymore. There are just uh, websites. Um, there are sites like Biota. There's, there are sites like alife.org, the International Society of Artificial Life, and they provide filter points where people who are interested in artificial life, maybe they've read the Wikipedia entry or maybe they've looked at something else, maybe they're thinking about Spore, and I know you're going to be talking to Will Wright in a, in a few weeks, Bruce, we'll get onto that in a, in a minute. But there are all these kind of things that are now only available online. So when I started out and when people like John Klein started out and Dave Kerr and a wide variety of the folk that I've talked to through the Biota interviews to date, there was just an immense sense of potential. And for me personally, I looked at it like a smorgasbord of, of possibilities. I already had an interest with regards to computer programming and I could see the future coming through artificial life. And in meeting people, well, in, in communicating with people like Dave Kerr and John Klein and folks like this, I realized that they all were reading exactly the same books that I was reading at exactly the same time. So anyway, whilst the Biota conferences went on, we were certainly aware of them. Biota too, I was particularly aware of um, because it got a lot of press in Australia. And... I think there were a wide variety of independent, what I will call hobbyist developers, who started their artificial life projects in a kind of mid-90s, maybe early to mid-90s time frame, who developed in isolation, in complete isolation, but with the kind of buoying excitement that artificial life was going in one direction and it was going up. And I think what this created was a series of passionate developers who can create the likes of Grey Thumb, who can create the likes of, um, you know, with me, with Nopole, uh, people like Gerald, although Gerald attended some of the early biota conferences, he's fundamentally a, a hobbyist in terms of the kind of reading and excitement and potential for the future. And we all kind of percolated along until, for me personally, when I was first contacted by Dave Kerr in about 2002, I know I'd been in communication with you, Bruce, for a few years before, but I think by the, in the times I was communicating with you, it was always either with regards to the site or uh, with regards to a conference or something like that. When Dave Kerr initially contacted me, it was the first primary contact I had had with a contemporary who was an artificial life developer. And if you look at AI Planet, Dave Kerr's work, it merits a lot of respect. And looking at his work and looking at his development in isolation, he's in, he's in Canada, um, and looking at these things, I felt an immense sense of kinship with him. And what happened was, you know, moving along, I discovered people like Gerald, I discovered people like John Klein, Ken Stauffer, I mean, just the list of people that I've had the privilege of interviewing in the Bias podcast to date. And we all have a similar history in some regard with regards to how we came to artificial life. Now, to be fair, the uh, A-Life conference and the academic strain of artificial life that's represented um, in the Artificial Life Journal that Mark Bedeau, uh is the editor, and Mark Bedeau has been on the Biota podcast previously as well, has continued to you know maintain a momentum. And as Bruce has pointed out, they do their own thing, but I think there is a way in which we can kind of cross-collaborate. 
certainly the feedback that I've had from people who have, you know, academic artificial life interests, so they're very excited about what's going on with biota, obviously what's going on with grey thumb, I mean, this primary contact and what's going on with grey thumb. And, you know, this momentum built to, I think, unless I've missed anything, really the point where we are uh, currently today, Bruce. Is, is that, have I missed anything in terms of the history? I think that perhaps what, what I'd like to add is that I think there was a there was sort of a black hole period. I remember by about the third biota conference, we realized that we were having the same speakers back, and that we weren't <laughs> finding new practitioners. And of course, if you'd come over from Australia, uh, been able to, then we would have had a new practitioner. But just like the avatars had their winter uh, between about 2001 and when Second Life came out, and the media pronounced the avatar medium dead. Um, I, th I think there was quite a black hole, and then with with the rise of of good, uh, powerful 3D graphics that was ubiquitous and cheap, and then the net, and then Web 2.0, and all the social community tools uh, between 2000 and now, uh, you have a whole just different, vibrant community uh, of people who are able to do code pro you know, code together and do projects across distances that you couldn't have done in the early 90s or even the mid 90s. Certainly, sorry, Justin. I was going to ask you a question. Bruce, are you the guy that wrote the book on avatars back in the uh, late 90s? That I am. <laughs> okay. That, I'm sorry I didn't realize that. Okay, that helps a lot. Thanks. Now I know who you are. <laughs> he has a yeah, lot you, of fans. <laughs> what's that? I've seen yeah, he wrote the book on avatars. Yeah, there was definitely a winter with avatars that happened, and it's been amazing. I, actually, I um, can I just jump in really quickly and add Certainly. to what you were saying? Um, one of the things that I noticed uh, – you know, when I started getting interested in this uh, in 1999, um, you know, there was around the time of like the with all the, the 20 million or so that went into BioScroop and the whole thing, then ultimately collapsed with the whole you know fiasco with the interest in doing like the auction engines that they got caught up with instead of doing real complexity science. And then I think what happened is we had this kind of winter all, almost a little bit with respect to artificial life, as well as we saw it at Simudine with simu with uh, simulation. And then I published in this really obscure little academic journal the idea that I, I uh, had done a simulation that said the tipping point for artificial life in simulation science was going to occur in 2006. And I gave this very obscure little uh, you know, talk up in Harrogate in the United Kingdom. And then about two years later, I got a call out of the blue from Gartner Group saying, hey, our research has been validated, it validates your, your findings in this, this journal. Would you come speak for an hour and a half at the European Business Process Modeling Summit in, in London? And I think what's happened is, is that all these corporations have figured out that the millions of dollars they're spending on Six Sigma business process, all this kind of stuff that they've done, really the only way to make it useful to turn their terabytes of data and information into knowledge of what may happen in the future is with simulation science and artificial life. And they finally, for whatever reason, have clued in, and we've crossed that chasm. Uh, so we've had the early innovators who maybe had a really struggle to, to communicate the effectiveness of these techniques, and now the, you know, the, the people with the money are saying, hey, this stuff actually does work. Let's use it. So I, I'm fascinated by the ideas of artificial, the principles of artificial life and kind of broader simulation in business applications. So for people not familiar with that, and I'm, I'm kind of interested but not completely familiar, can you give a kind of positive description of that, Justin? Sure. I mean, you could use, um, well, like the, the um, uh, you know, the guy Adam, he's developed the Autocore engine, which does uh, 
uh, it's an evolutionary computation engine, uh, a virtual ecosystem, and it basically grows software. And you know, it's being used for things like pattern recognition. So in, in, in perhaps, for example, identifying images, so determining whether you know, the, you're looking at a motorcycle or whether you're looking at a plane, or also looking at, say, high-resolution you know, multispectral data for you know, detecting landmines or uh, improvised explosive devices for militaries. You know, so these are the types of things that, that you can actually grow software that's uh, you know, quite powerful. And what I tell people is, no, we're not going to grow the next SAP or accounting system. What we are going to grow is software that you know, uh, touches on some of the capabilities that humans have or other you know, living organisms. So what we've described so far is the people and the conferences and these kind of things. But what fascinated me in terms of, I mean, if you appreciate someone listening to this for the first time may think of artificial life in terms of genetic algorithms or uh, cellular automata or these kind of things. Can uh, Maybe Justin might start with this and Bruce might finish. Can you describe how we got from Conway's artificial life through into this very broad field that we are now referring to as artificial life? Sure. I... I the way I often describe it is genetic algorithms where you define an explicit fitness function and many of the approaches, I mean, I would, if you look at Minsky and some of the other approaches, I call it the intelligent design approach to artificial life. And then there's the more biological approach to artificial life, which is more of the idea of, you know, so to speak, cracking the algorithm of evolution and then allowing the software to evolve. So instead of having, you know, like the, the penultimate, you know, the, the ultimate algorithm designed by humans that's been made explicit in the software, you actually let the algorithms evolve. And that's more of the kind of the natural, you know, evolution by natural selection approach. So I, I contrast, there's almost two schools in my mind in the software world of artificial life. There's the intelligent design folks, and then there's the, uh, you know, the normal, the you know, evolution by natural selection. I mean, that's kind of a, I try to say that to be kind of confrontational. Uh, but I think, I think it's, I think it's a fair statement, a fair way of looking at it. So to differentiate genetic algorithms or neural nets or other traditional techniques that are more inspired by computer science to artificial life, uh, I, I tend to view them as more of an intelligent design approach to artificial life. I mean, from my own background, and then I'll pass it to Bruce, what has interested me is the elements of nature and nurture. So this is both genetics and epigenetics fundamentally. And... There are many different ways of doing artificial life, a couple of which you've touched on. But what has interested me particularly in the contemporary model is that there's a component that has come in which is almost, if not, artificial intelligence, as well as pre-existing genetic algorithms. Um, and what interests me is that to do improving artificial life simulation in some regard, you need both a combination of genetics and epigenetics in terms of both the nature component in terms of evolving over time, but also the nurture component in terms of some abstract idea of intelligence that can um, be operating across generations as well as, as um, intergenerationally, if that makes any sense. So still, it, it begs the question, Bruce, how do we move from Conway's artificial life to where we are today? Well, I, th I think... I. I would agree with Justin that there's the sort of the, the hands-off, lights-out artificial life of uh, Carl Sims where he makes two hinged blocks and gives it a physics world and 
you know, comes back in two weeks to see what's come out is, is an utterly different thing from, say, a Will Wright's Spore, which when it comes out this year is going to shift everyone's attention and say, well, this is an evolution game. When it's really not, it's it's an artificial, it's an intelligent designer's dream. Um, but you're using editors to edit everything from every creature to the environments to their houses and their spacecraft and whatever. And then there's procedures, uh, procedural cross-dissolves going on between the creatures as they kind of eat stuff and grow and whatever. But it's very, very procedurally driven. But the public is going to going to look at spore and think of that as, as as artificial life. It'll be mischaracterized as that. Um, well, we hope it will be. We, we, <laughs> some of us hope it will be. Maybe we'll have to create a new term. Um, what's what's interesting, the, over in the, uh, in the sort of inhabited cyberspace of avatar space and game space, uh, there's this eternal confusion between a, what is a an avatar world, social virtual worlds where you construct your own experience versus massive multiplayer, which have, has a social and, and user-constructed element. But we're finally seeing a differentiation happening because the people in Second Life, that the press come and they look at Second Life and they think, well, that's, that's not really a game, is it? And they're asking the users and the users are saying, no, no, it's something else. And so a, a term is appearing that actually characterizes it separate from a game. And, and in artificial life, maybe, uh, as you pointed out in a previous podcast, Tom, um, people like uh, Stuart Kaufman or the, the wet biology artificial life people are, are commandeering the term. Uh, so there are a lot of people commandeering the term, and there's going to be a lot of confusion. So perhaps um, maybe the wisest thing would be to, to use the term artificial evolution so that you focus on the process that you're trying to simulate uh, which is evolution? You're trying to do the, uh, you know, the uh, non-intelligent design version. So maybe we do. We need to create a new term and, and put it out there. Certainly, there's always been a problem with the term, and this comes up frequently through Biota. I mean, I think the last one that we championed was artificial nature for a period of time, and I think perhaps to our detriment, we always end up returning to artificial life because it still has some popular description and the difficulty when you start talking about, I mean, historically, when I started developing Noble Ape, there were people who wouldn't put Noble Ape on their link sites because it wasn't cellular automata. And then there were people who wouldn't put it on their link sites because it wasn't explicitly genetic algorithms. And the problem is that there has been some disconnect between folk that say, oh, artificial life is just genetic algorithms, cellular automata, repeat, whatever, and the contemporary practitioners of artificial life who just see this immense kind of diversity of software that has, in some senses, very small vents. Anyway, Justin, you were going to say something. Yeah, well, no, just keep going. I mean, I think where you're going is good. I, I was just going to add to what Bruce said, but I think I wouldn't add much more to what, you, what you're building on. So keep going. So, I mean, I think my experience has been, and this comes through... Um, Gratham's John Klein, when John Klein released his screensaver, his Brevet Walker screensaver, people came to Noble 8 based on that fact. Uh, people came and said, hey, I have this cool screensaver, and um, you know, Noble 8 was a bit like it. I'm interested in learning about Noble 8 as well. And what fascinates me with Spore, and I know we'll talk a little bit about this in a minute. I keep saying that, Bruce, but with regards to your talk at AIM 
with Will Wright. But with Spore, there's immense potential for all artificial life developers and artificial life users and philosophers and all the folk associated with artificial life to get a new burst of possible users, possible thinkers, perhaps young people, you know, these kind of things. What I talk about with regards to the books in the early 90s, perhaps Spore could be that inspiration. And I think there's immense potential with regards to uh, Will Wright's efforts. Um, now, Bruce, I know you're going to be, you're giving the first keynote and then Will Wright is giving the second keynote towards the end of this month. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's going to be a very interesting conference because, as, as you guys know, uh, but the listenership doesn't, I've, I've, my main employment for the last seven years has been working with NASA. And NASA is an interesting agency because it combines astrobiology, where there's origin of life people and people looking for life in the universe, with, with cool robotics and a lot of research into emergent phenomena and robotics and, and uh you know, all kinds of software systems, control systems and flight systems and whatever. So it's a it's a really good laboratory for ideas. Um, it's, a, it's a troubled agency, but, you know, what agency isn't troubled? And one of the uh, things that has happened at NASA Ames Research Center in Mountain View is that our, our wonderful new center director, Pete Warden, has taken an interest in virtual worlds. And so he formed a group that has created a space in Second Life that's used all the time and He's been an avatar and walked around, and he's interested in the Biota Project himself personally, and he's sponsoring a two-day workshop at Ames. It's invitation only, unfortunately, uh, but it's going to bring together the best people in the virtual world uh, sphere with the people who are building spacecraft and, and trying to reach the public about space. And Will Wright is coming as our, our Saturday second keynote. I'm the first the keynote first so that he can see the stuff we're doing, uh, and then he's going to shape his talk, uh, which is going to certainly present Spore, but he's going to talk about how Spore is relevant to exciting people about space, and I'm interested to see if he, if I can sit down with him at lunch and talk to him about Biota, and he, he was always very interested in the Biota project, and he knew about the Digital Burgess Conference, but maybe we'll uh, actually be able to get him to, to contribute to this effort here. Well, he would be a great guest on Boat Alive, and I think certainly, um, you know, we, we may even have to extend it for longer than 60 minutes if we had Will Wright on, because I know a number of folk would want to uh, want to get involved and participate in that. For folks who are interested how they can call, the number, um, it's a U.S. number, area code 646-200-0640. So get that queued in your phones for 8 p.m. on a Friday night Pacific time. Um, and, yeah, call in, because ultimately, folk like Justin, we hadn't pre-queued Justin, although he emailed us in advance that he was going to call. It's wonderful to have folks calling in like Justin uh, and just contributing to the discussion with regards to artificial life. So returning to the, the definitions, the folks who were interested in... Um, perhaps aspects of biology, perhaps aspects of um, what you do uh, with NASA, Bruce. I mean, what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about either starting an artificial life project or contributing to an artificial life project? And we'll start with Justin. Uh, sure. I, the question is, just to make sure I understand, is what, would I, what advice would I give to people? 
I think first off would be getting involved in the different communities and don't hesitate to, to drop an email or pick up the phone and talk to other people. It's still a relatively, uh, the community is still coming together. So there's lots of opportunities for cross-pollination, if you will. Uh, but you have to have the courage to kind of reach out and share what you're doing. And I think there's still a lot of people that are kind of operating in isolation and not sharing their code or, or, or participating in conversations, which is limiting their ability. Uh, I think, too, um, I think in understanding that we, we are a little bit at this tipping point of simulation science and artificial life, and we're going to see, you know, perhaps at some point, artificial avatars, you know, avatars that are managed by, you know, maybe the, where the squirrels in Second Life actually have behaviors that are not just scripted, you know, run back and forth, but actually they, you know, that you can train them so that they would, you know, become friendly if you always feed them or run away if you scare them. So I think, you know, looking for things like the virtual world interoperability forums, you know, uh, that, that we're part of and that other people, I think NASA's part of it, and so is IBM. Uh, I think those would be the two recommendations is, you know, Join the community, share code, share ideas, and to look for opportunities to get involved in virtual world uh, efforts because that's going to drive a lot of interest in artificial life. Yeah, I've got to agree that making contact with artificial life developers is probably very fruitful. I mean, on the the point that you made with regards to people feeling isolated, uh, for a period of time I actually actively went out and tried to find isolated artificial life developers to bring them into biota and I think certainly as soon as I got in contact as my initial contact was with Dave Kerr these people were very excited to get involved but you need to appreciate if you were to contact me or Bruce or anyone who's been interviewed on the previous biota podcasts or Justin they too would be very excited to communicate with you I mean I really enjoy receiving email from folks who are not even Noble Ape users, folks who are still wondering what Noble Ape is, or maybe they've listened to an Ape Reality podcast or they've listened to a Biota podcast. And there's no such thing really as a question that's too novice. I mean, really, if you wanted a definition of a particular term or really more pointers about where to look for more information on artificial life, artificial life developers are you know, the ideal people to get in contact with. And I think we really are a community of like-minded folk that all share some kind of common vision with regards to what we'd like to see in the future. But Bruce, if you were contacted by uh, someone who is interested in getting involved with artificial life, what, what advice would you give them? Well, I think that I would try to give them a perspective on the history and that what they're getting into. So, for instance, there are so many people, and we, we, we all know about this, people who have put their heart and soul into building a platform which is gets a little bit of use for some years and then it falls by the wayside because you simply burn out. Um, you may get some users, but you burn out. And I've, I've seen this with other platforms. It's not just artificial life. So the question you would ask is, say, are you... Are you in this for the long term, or do you want to do an experiment, try out the, the medium, try out your hand, your skill set? Uh, what is your objective? Are you, do you want to write about it? Do you want to speak about it? You know, what are you really wanting to do? Uh, because it's an enormously complex field with very little definition, uh, and, and maybe it should be something that serves your life goals. And Certainly. If they're within a group, and I would suggest to them, I said, look, in, instead of building yet another artificial life system, and I guess you could call it a, a YA 
uh, L, S, or whatever, yet another language, um, is it possible that you could work with a group of people who are building a kind of larger meta system that will outlive uh, the energies of the developers that, that started it? So it could be more like a Linux effort. And one of the things I'm going to bring to the March A-Life, uh, the Graytham group, is just some hand-waving concepts uh, about how could you do this? How could you create XML? How could you create a, a back-end grid that would do artificial life ex experimentation and then create a number of different viewers that could view what's going on in the back-end? Uh, separate the 3D scene graph from the actual process of the genotype, phenotype process, and that people could contribute to that larger project, whether they're building a 3D viewer, whether they're building a, putting a noble ape in there, or putting any kind of a, you know, or an L system, forest generator, or whatever, and then they, they, they quit the effort, and the effort continues, and it's just carried on and on for, for decades, like operating systems are, and that, that's what I would always try to promote, because I think that is the next sta stage of evolution of the artificial life uh, dream, if you will. Certainly. And if I can add to that, I mean, my experience with Noble Ape has been that there have been at least half a dozen, if not now on uh, Facebook, I, I can track more than 30, I think, folks that have contributed something over the past 12 years to Noble Ape. And because they've contributed something, their efforts are no way diminished if they've gone on to do other things or, you know, finished their masters or now work for another company or these kind of things. So I think even if you're interested in just kind of sticking your toe into artificial life development or just wanting to experiment with something or, um, you know, perhaps uh, write some source code or play with some files and see what happens, I mean, all these things are um, very valid and will be heavily supported by um, folks such as myself who have developed artificial life projects for a number of years. And I think I still keep in contact with people who did maybe six months of stuff related to Noble Ape and, you know, we still exchange gifts and, you know, keep in contact with one another. What I will talk about a little bit is the... Um, methodologies of open source and how they've impacted on artificial life over, I guess, the past decade, because pretty well all the artificial life projects that you would see through going through Biota, for example, the Biota site, and also through Graytham and um, the International Society of Artificial Life site, are open source, which means that you can contribute source code and get involved in a very kind of hands-on fashion if you have that skill set. Now, my own experience, and certainly something I've passed on to other um, artificial life open source developers, is that you cultivate the community of contributions by, you know, sending people packages, sending people T-shirts. I know, Bruce, you have at least an original manual and a Noble Ape T-shirt for your <laughs> ongoing interest with Noble Ape, and you just make it a nice thing that people will come back to and think about and interact with. So there are all these kind of levels to uh, developing artificial life and creating these small projects. And what has always interested me, as Bruce talks about, is getting together artificial life developers and actually creating collaborative projects. Now, Justin, have you had any experience of, of collaborative simulation and artificial life projects? And can you talk a little bit about your experiences? Yes, um 
several actually. Uh, one is I've been working with um, one of the great thumbers, a guy named Adam, who is developing something called AutoCore. He uh, has given a talk on it at, at one of the great thumb sessions, and uh, have been helping you know develop that with him and kind of. Uh, through our relationship with IBM, we have a very kind of high-level relationship with IBM, have gotten that system, that evolutionary computation, computation system, actually running on the BlueGene P architecture, which is the world's you know, fastest supercomputer, as well as on now the cell broadband engine. And that's been a very collaborative uh, effort. You know, we've been very effective in avoiding the legal demons uh, within IBM by just basically working directly with the technology people uh, within IBM to get access to this stuff. Uh, and that's been a lot of fun. And as a result of that uh, relationship with IBM, what's happened now subsequently is we have now are working with them on setting up uh, a couple things. One, Simi uh, and I, and the company I work for, we've, we've had our own platform, but we've decided, well, the board still has to approve it, but it looks like we're going to open source all of the code and add it to the uh, what's called the virtual world interoperability forums, which is looking for ways of creating methodologies or, or classes or frameworks, whatever the term is, uh, for interoperability between virtual worlds. So, you know, if you have an avatar in Second Life and it makes sense and you want to go into, say, your private corporate headquarters that's behind the firewall, how would that happen? How could you make that transition uh, and helping with helping and actually developing that? Yeah. And that's, a, that's entirely open source uh, an effort that's being done, you know, with wikis and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so yeah, we do. I mean, more and more, we've been realizing that uh, you know the, the platform approach, you're making yet another platform to, to kind of go build on what Bruce is saying, is probably not the approach. And we see a lot of gaming companies and simulation companies that have you know these integrated development environments that are proprietary, and they're very, very difficult to sell. I've been selling simulation software now since 2000, and it's incredibly difficult to sell proprietary systems. And when you use an open source platform, it's, it just takes away all the barriers uh, for corporations. Certainly, certainly. And with nine minutes remaining, I mean, my experiences with Noble Ape, with Intel and Apple in particular, probably, well, would have only occurred uh, if Noble Ape was open source. But what interests me as well, and you mentioned IBM and my experiences with Apple and Intel as well, is when, when you talk about the technology people, the engineers on the ground are very receptive to the kind of ideas that are coming through uh, contemporary artificial life, particularly uh, with regards to distribution, scalability, all the things you get for free with artificial life in some regard. Um, and it fascinates me, the idea of these large companies, which may be viewed by some as being kind of monoliths, but actually are kind of a wide variety of like soldier ant engineers that are you know, developing their own specific uh, projects for the corporations, picking up artificial life along the way. And I think that probably will be a, a narrative that we'll cover. I mean, in the hour time slot, I'm going to kind of wrap a little bit about the um, format for future Biota Lives. We're going to touch on a number of topics, some of which we've introduced already um, in the show this evening. But the plan is also to perhaps do things over uh, weeks or months. So if there's a topic that's just too big, uh, I'll have a guest on someone like Bruce or someone like Justin and we will kind of dissect it in some regard and then also have the potential for folks to call in and contribute. There is a live chat window as well that people can contribute questions through. So 
Um, Justin, you, I appreciate you've been calling from the UK, and thank you very much for, for calling in, probably at some cost to you. Um, in the future, I believe Blog Talk Radio will actually have a, a number where you, uh, a button which you can press, which will enable you to speak through the system, but that isn't up and running currently. So the future for these shows, Justin, you are no doubt going to be a continuing listener and probably a continuing contributor as well. What kind of topics would you like to see in, in future Biota Lives? I'd like to see us talk about ways that people that are interested in artificial life can actually make money doing what they love. Um, I know that there's been a lot of work by you know, hackers and hobbyists who have full-time jobs and do this at night or on the side. Um, and I'd love to... What's that? I said I'm in, sorry. Uh, the, I think that's the nature of my life and the nature of many of my uh, fellow artificial life hobbyists, but continue, sorry. No, no, I agree. I think that what's happened is, is that um, there's this book called The Innovator's Dilemma. And I think many of the hobbyists to people that have innovated in this space have struggled to communicate effectively to economic buyers the value and this tremendous value I'm talking billions of dollars are at stake here with these technologies uh, you know machine to machine communicate all sorts of different aspects are important and I think that from a marketing perspective we as a community uh, have a lot to learn with respect to communicating effective, effectively to those economic buyers and convincing them to part with their hard-earned company money to experiment and, and to do the kinds of things that uh, that we I think we can do. Do you think open source adds a complexity to that? No, I think it makes it easier. I think it'd be, uh, personally, I think that, you know, the open source actually makes it easier because it allows people to jump in, jump out more easily. So if they're hobbyists, they can jump in, contribute. And then over time, as they prove their worth, uh, you know, they can, you know, eventually become part of the core teams, uh, contribute more and more. I think. It, I think it personally. I think it helps. It also adds validity uh, to the to the efforts. But that's my personal bias. You know, I'm sitting here working on a MacBook. You know, so. <laughs> so right. in terms of other abstract topics that you might be interested in, I mean, you've touched a little bit on science fiction. I mean, I think what fascinates me in doing these podcasts is artificial life artists as well, and how they bend both into aspects of the science and the biology. What other what other topics would you like to see covered? Uh, can I jump in here? Oh, certainly, Bruce. I'm not sure if we've lost. I think we've lost. I think we may have lost uh, Justin. I'll see. I'm still here. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. It, 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 for some reason, you were uh, you were muted for a minute, Bruce. With uh, four minutes remaining, a couple of future topics for Bios Alive. I have a question for you guys, uh, which will. If, if I do this, it'll be part of my... You won't be able to stop me talking about it for years. <laughs> but um, as Tom knows, I'm starting a PhD program, uh, direct, a, a self-directed research plus a whole lot of peer review with a, a big advisory committee that's actually based in the UK. It's at the University of East London campus. And I'm going over for the initial uh, student induction um, in February. I don't know if you, Justin, you're in the UK or not, but I, I know you flew from the UK at one point. But um, I live in London. Live I would London? love to get together. I live in London. I would love to get together with you. Yeah, and there's a lot. I'm actually quite keen on starting a uh, something similar to Grey Thumb in London. Yeah, no, that would be wonderful to have a Grey Thumb London chapter. But Bruce, with with three minutes remaining. Well, what if if one was to have? I have three years to uh, build and. Uh, possibly build an artificial life system either myself or with a team 
I have a little bit of company support to do things. I have uh, NASA looking over my shoulder to potentially use some of this stuff, um, research. I can get a lot of, I might even be able to get uh, Richard Dawkins to be on the advisory committee. Um, but I can get a, a great number of people to be advising and, and looking at the progress of this work. If, if, if you were me, what would you be doing for those three years? To What kind of a system would you be building? Can this wait until next week, Bruce? Could this be the topic for next week? Sure could. Okay. We, we have two minutes remaining, so I have to do a wrap-up here. Thank you both very much for calling in. For folks listening to this via the podcast, you too can call in. It's uh, 8 p.m. Pacific on a Friday evening. We're going to do these Biota Lives for an hour, possibly even longer if you'd like. Uh, for more information, biota.org slash podcast. Uh, that will give you all the details with regards to this podcast, some contact information for me if you have any additional points of feedback. I look forward to hearing from uh, additional folks and possibly even Justin, I'm assuming Bruce, so he can get the answer to his question the same time next week. Thank you all very much for listening.